We are going to dive in now uh, to the Word in a minute, but I want to start off uh, telling you a little story. Anybody recognize this picture or recognize what part of the country this may be? That is Acadia National Park up in Maine. Raise your hand if you've been up to Acadia. If you've been up to Acadia, you have seen many coastlines similar to that. You have probably walked along the coastlines and rock jumped and played. And uh, my family and I were up there a few summers ago, and I remember one particular afternoon uh, we were... Uh, playing along uh, the coast, hopping along rocks, and there was one particular kind of part that jutted out, kind of a little peninsula, and the kids went out, and when they got to the end of it, they realized that there was a, a further rock out in the ocean a little bit, but to get to it, you had to jump. And so Oliver, being uh, my bravest, um, he, he jumped out across this little span onto this isolated little rock island there uh, on the edge of, of Acadia National Park. And it was very exciting, and we all cheered, and, and he hung out there for a minute or two. But then he realized that to come back, he would have to jump back, but, but this time he was going to have to jump up a couple of feet. Right, because he had jumped down and he could no longer get a running start, and so he realized he was in a little bit of a predicament. Now sitting on this rock, uh, um, you know, a few feet uh, from 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 land, and so after so, some studying and analyzing and some cheering and jeering by his uh, siblings and and me busting out the camera. Um, he decided to take the leap and to try to jump back across this little span onto land again, having to jump up, and he made it. Sort of. He, he did kind of slip into the ocean, um, but, but he was not swept away. He was able to pull himself back up and get back on land. But it was a good family memory. And I want you to picture that. Picture one of those rocks kind of set off a little bit. And think about a child on one of those rocks or a loved one on one of those rocks. But think about it too far out, then you could jump, right? Let, let's say 10, 15 feet out, set off. And, and, and a loved one is out there and now the tide starts rising, right? And you can see the waves splashing in this picture. Imagine the tide coming in and, and the, 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 the water is rising up, coming closer and closer up on this little rock that a loved one's standing on and it begins to splash and they're getting wet and now the rock is slippery, right? And you see them out there. What's going through your mind in a situation like that? Seeing a loved one, potential danger, right? Potential, if the water gets too high, if a wave crashes, they could get swept out, get pulled out into the ocean. But imagine that this is a spot that you've been to dozens and dozens of times. In fact, you've actually stood out on that rock dozens and dozens of times. And you know that the tide is not going to overtake the top of the rock. You know that as strong as the waves are going to get, that that rock is steady. And that really the only danger that they're in is if they try to escape on their own. If they try to somehow jump that 10 foot span or if they somehow try to swim across, then there's a risk of them getting swept out into the ocean. But you know, because you've been to that spot, that if they just stay there and keep a strong footing and stay calm, that they'll be okay. And so you climb out to the edge and you call out to your child or your loved one and you say, it's okay. You're going to be fine. The rock that you're on is firm. It's steady. Just stay put. Just hang on. The tide will go back in in a little bit. You'll have dry land to walk across. Just stay put. Don't slip. Stay calm and stand firm. Stand firm. You know if all they do is just wait and stand firm and keep their footing solid. The rock is solid. The waves will not overtake them. You've been there. You've come out the other side. And stand firm is a refrain that we hear again and again in the New Testament. Isn't that right? 
And as we jump now into the book of, of 2 Thessalonians, that's going to be our big picture theme for the next six weeks, is this call to stand firm, to stand on the rock of Christ. By the way, isn't Lachelle Cosmo awesome? I gave her like this picture that I had in my head and she somehow created that for us to be able to enjoy the next six weeks. Thank you, Lachelle. Yes, amen, amen. Now, if you were with us in the fall, you remember that we covered the book of First Thessalonians, that letter, the letter that Paul, Silas, and Timothy written to the Christians in Thessalonica. Remember that they had originally gone to that city as missionaries. They had brought the gospel. Many people in that place had come to faith. A church had been planted. But you also remember that opposition had risen up in the city of Thessalonica. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy had to flee without properly preparing the new church for their departure. But yet God still did his, his work in that city. And quickly word spreads that the Thessalonian Christians are doing quite well. And we read in the first letter that their faith in the gospel had actually become an example. That it was ringing out to the surrounding region how strong they were in their faith in Christ. You remember that Paul and Silas then sent Timothy back to the city to encourage them to get a report from them how they were doing. And we read this in 1 Thessalonians 3, 6-8. to Follow along on the screen. They say, but now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news about your faith and love. He reported that you always have good memories of us and that you long to see us as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we were encouraged about you through your faith. For now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. So even in the first letter... These missionaries, these leaders are encouraged, encouraged that the new Christians are standing firm, standing firm in the Lord. However, that's not the end of the story. From what we can piece together shortly after the first letter was written, Paul, Silas, and Timothy get new information and they become concerned. They become concerned about this new church that while their faith is strong, their footing could slip. See, persecution and affliction have increased in the church and now there's misinformation spreading in the church. Now there's apathy growing in the church. And as we read Second Thessalonians over the next six weeks, we'll see that there's still thankfulness, there's still encouragement in the letter, but we're also going to read a little bit of a different tone. There's rebuke, there's correction, there's admonition. Paul's going to address many similar themes to what we studied in the fall. We'll read about the spread of the gospel. We'll read about how to handle affliction and suffering. There's going to be a long section answering questions about the return of Jesus. He's going to call them to work hard and not to give in to idleness. There's a short letter, so we'll only three chapters we'll look at in the next six weeks. This call to stand firm. It's almost like you can hear Paul, Silas, and Timothy standing on the shoreline. It's almost like they're calling out to the Thessalonians. Right? We've been there. We've faced persecution. We've suffered affliction. We, we've, we've dealt with rumors and misinformation in the church. And what we're calling you to do is to stand firm. Just hold tight. Trust in the Lord. The rock that you're standing on is firm. Just stand firm, they'll call out in the second letter to the Thessalonians. Look at how the letter opens in, in chapter 1, verse 4. It opens with an affirmation of their faith where the, the, they write to them, we, we boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness in faith and all your persecution and in the afflictions that you are enduring. They still have faith and they're still worthy of, of example. But then in chapter 2, we, we read how they're facing misinformation about the return of Jesus. 
And they'll write this in the opening of chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of the Lord and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. See, there's rumors going around that are seeking to shake their faith, that are seeking to alarm them, and they call out, stand firm, don't be alarmed. In chapter 2.15, they say this, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. Stand firm. Hold to those traditions. See, ultimately, their hope that they have in the Thessalonians' faith is, is not in their ability to hold on, but in God's faithfulness. Remember those comforting words Karen just mentioned them from, from the first letter. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You remember that from 1 Thessalonians 5, 24? We hear almost those exact same words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. They say this towards the end of the letter. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. See, they can call them to stand firm because they know that the Lord is faithful and that He is guarding them. So with all this background in mind, we're going to dive into the letter this morning. We're just going to look at the first four verses. And we're going to see the call that we have as the Lord's children to stand firm. And we're going to look at the call to stand firm in faith, in love, and in perseverance. And I think that's a good word to begin the new year, isn't it? A call, a reminder for us to stand firm in faith, to stand firm in love, and to stand firm in persecution in the midst of hardships. So we'll read 2 Thessalonians 1-4, to and I'm going to pray and pause to ask for the Spirit to be with us. God in heaven, we thank you for these people, for the community of faith. We thank you for the testimony of our lives and the encouragement that you are to us. We thank you, Father, for your word that you speak to us day in and day out. A word that is living and active, a spirit that speaks powerfully to our hearts. We thank you, Father, for the journey that we took in the fall alongside of our Thessalonian brothers and sisters learning with them. And we pray now, God, that, that we would hear your voice again as we read sort of part two. Speak to us. And we pray this morning, God, that you would stir our faith, that we would be stirred to stand firm, that you would grow faith and love and perseverance in us. Come now, Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Amen. So the opening of the letter is, is very familiar. It's, it's very, very similar to the first letter. And we see that the letter written by Paul, but it's sent from the three of them, the three missionary partners, to the church, to the entire body of believers. And it's sent in the name of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They extend their blessing, a blessing of grace and peace to them which comes only from God the Father, only from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting, in the first letter, the Holy Spirit played a more central role. It's actually only in chapter 2 of this letter that the Holy Spirit is, is mentioned once, but we know that grace and peace come from, from all of the Godhead. They say in verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Paul begins this letter as he does with almost every letter he writes with a word of thanksgiving. But there's something noteworthy here in, in, in verse 3. He says, we ought to give thanks. See, thanksgiving is owed to God. 
It's owed to God because of the amazing things He's done in the lives of the Thessalonian Christians. There's a sense of compulsion here. Paul says, it's only right. It's only right that I thank God for you because of what is going on in your life. Friends, the same is true for us. It is right for us to give thanks to God. We live in a world that is far too negative, far too critical, far too quick to complain. But can we, the people of God, give God what He's due, which in in one sense is thanksgiving? Do we do that every day? Do we thank Him for what He's doing in our lives? I know you have a thousand things to complain about, a thousand things you wish were different. But I bet you can think of a dozen at least of good things to be thankful for in your life. Even thanking God for what He's doing in the lives of others. Can you rejoice and give thanks to God for what He's done in the lives of people that have gone through trials. Verse 3 says it's only right to give thanks. Why? Because their faith is growing, growing abundantly. Now, we know from the first letter that the, the Thessalonians' faith is, is renowned, right? They've been commended again and again for their faith. What is faith? In Greek, the word faith is just the noun form of the verb to believe. If you believe in something, you have faith. Faith is, is to believe and trust in, in something or someone. The Bible says it's the assurance of the things that you hope for. It's the conviction of the things that you can't see. You may not see it, but you have a conviction, a belief, a trust in who God is and what He is doing. And their faith is growing. These Christians have a faith that is growing abundantly. It's flourishing, one translation says. Now, now some of you, this might sound odd. What, what do you mean their faith is growing? Like, isn't faith kind of an either-or? Like, either you believe or you don't. Either you have faith or you don't have faith. Not not really. You can have a lot of faith or a little faith. You can have a really strong faith or a weak faith. You can have a faith that's steady or you can have a faith that's inconsistent. You can have a growing faith or a stagnant faith. But hear this, what saves us is not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith. See, even if you have weak faith, but if that weak faith is in a strong God, that's still powerful enough to save you. Amen? See, the Lord says, put faith in me. Put whatever faith that you have, however unsteady or inconsistent or wobbly or weak, put it in me and I will hold you and I will grow your faith. And so I want to call us again this morning, again this year, each and every one of you, no matter where you are, put your faith in Christ. Put your faith in your Creator, your Father in Heaven, who sent His His only Son, Christ, to die on the cross to absolve you of your sin, to take on your penalty, to die as your substitute, the, the, the Savior that rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the devil, who now sends His Holy Spirit through faith to fill your heart, to give you peace that passes understanding, to give you joy in the midst of hardship, to give you direction and guidance in the midst of turmoil. Trust in Christ. Put your faith in Him. In a few moments as we wrap up the service this morning, we're going to celebrate what Christ has done. We're going to have that physical symbol of our intangible faith and we're going to, we're going to feast upon His body and His blood and remind ourselves of what He's done for us. And I hope that you will come to the table and celebrate what Christ has done. We see in verse 4 that their faith isn't growing abundantly. It isn't flourishing because they're in a season of smooth sailing. Everything's going beautifully, therefore my faith is flourishing. No, no. It's because they're facing persecution and affliction. Right? See, faith, as I've, as I've mentioned to you before, I, I'd like you to think about faith as a muscle. And like a muscle, it's only going to grow what? If it's being used. And like a muscle, if, if it's being used, that means that there's a force either pushing against it or pulling on it. Right? It's the only way your muscles are going to grow. It's the only way your faith is going to grow. If, if something or someone is pushing or pulling. And that involves pain. 
It, it literally involves the muscle fibers tearing and then being rebuilt stronger. And, and if your faith this morning feels sore, if you feel tired, it probably means that you've been using your faith. But guess what? That means it's growing. Because only when you're using your faith will it grow. Our sister Karen shared just that this morning. That all of those storms that she's been through in life, and she only told us about the latest, I know, of some others. But each and every time that storm came, her faith was built up. And if you heard her share that testimony this morning, and you thought, well, I could never respond in faith like that. I could never read a pathology report online telling me that I have cancer and immediately respond in faith. I could never immediately respond and in love and trust for God. Surely I'd have a few days, a few weeks of sorrow and depression and anger and frustration. Do, do you realize that our sister only responded that way? She only had that kind of strength of faith because of years and years of it growing. Of all of the tears and all of the pushing and all of the pulling and all of, all of the, the stretching that has happened to her. See, faith grows. And if you're not using your faith, if you're not living in faith like a muscle, it'll atrophy. And you say, well, I struggle. I struggle to believe. I struggle to hold on. I would ask you, what are you doing to exercise your faith? What are you doing to, to actively put trust in the Lord? That He would strengthen you and reassure you. And so let's pray together in 2022. God, stretch us. Grow our faith. Grow our faith in abundance. Help us to trust you more consistently, we pray, God. To believe in you more fully every day. To follow you more closely every hour. We pray and ask God to build and, and, and flourish our faith. Verse 3 continues. Not only is their faith growing, but we see that their love is increasing. They write there that the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Now again, you might remember from 1 Thessalonians that their love was also noteworthy. As we see in 1 Thessalonians 4, God had taught them to love one another. And even though God had taught them to love one another, they were urged in the first letter, do this more and more. In fact, in, in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul, Silas, and Timothy actually pray for them. Even though their love is exemplary, they pray that their love would increase. They wrote this in the first letter, and now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. As we do for you. Isn't this so cool? I don't know, pa Pastor Matt, we'll have to look this week. But this is one of the initial instances that I can think about. There are others where like we have a prayer recorded in scripture. And then we have the answering of the prayer recorded. Right? They prayed that they would have more and more faith. And now in the second letter we read, yes, that their faith is flourishing, is increasing. Friends, pray for your loved ones. Pray for those that are struggling because God hears and God answers. And, and hear this as well. You might be walking in obedience. You might be a person of faith. You might be in a season of joy or in love. But don't become content. Don't become complacent. Just because they were strong in their love for one another. The apostles still prayed that their love would increase. And we see that it has increased. As strong as their love was, they're now loving as Christ would more. See friends, no matter where you're at, no matter how strong you may feel, or no matter how weak you may feel, God's grace is always more and the heart of Christ can always increase in us. And no matter how much you love someone, the call here is to love, no matter how much you love someone, you can always love more. Because the heart of God is infinite. I thought about my wife. I thought about 20 years ago when I fell in love with her. 
And I'll just say it, man, I fell hard. I, I, I mean, there, there was affection, there was poems, there was passion, there was romance. After five months, I couldn't take it anymore. I asked her to marry me. Then when we got married, I thought, I love this woman as much as I possibly could, right? And then I got married and we get into the first year of marriage and realize, oh, wait a minute, this is really hard. Now, now I understand why marriage is really hard. And we worked through some challenges that first year. And in the midst of those challenges, our love for one another grew. And I somehow was able to love her more than I, what I thought I had loved her the most that I could. I loved her more. And then we had kids. Now you might think if you sit down and do the math, well, if you have children, now you have the same amount of love and you got to divide it between a wife and between a child, right? But it doesn't work that way. I saw my wife carry our first child. I saw her give birth to our first child and, and care for him. And all of a sudden, I not only loved now this child, but I loved her more. My love for her increased. And then we left our hometown, we left our home church, we left the town where Karen had grown up and, and her family was, and we moved to this foreign land called Southern York County. And we went through the challenges of starting over and jobs and family life and homes. We went through the challenges of planting a church and walking through those challenges, our dependence on one another and our love for one another grew again. You see the point that I'm saying, right? When you love someone, when you love the people of God, when you love the lost, as you walk through challenges, as you're intentional, that love grows and increases. Don't get complacent and say, yeah, well, I love my kids. Yeah, well, I love my coworkers. Yeah, I love the church. I'm in a good place. Friends, after 22 years, our love for one another is stronger and tighter, tighter than it certainly was way back at the beginning. And so you might be here this morning and say, yeah, I love God. Of course. Yeah, I love God. Yeah, I love my family. Of course. I'm a good family man. Yeah, I love my wife. I love my kids. Of course, I love Christians. Yeah, well, yeah, I love the lost. I mean, yeah, Jesus says I'm supposed to tell them about him. But can we pray that our love would increase? Can we pray as we're called here that our love would flourish and abound and increase and grow? I define love. You've heard me define it this way before. I define love as a deep passion. A devotion, it's an affection. Yes, yes, love is a, is a commitment. Yes, love is a decision. But don't let anybody tell you that it's not also a passion and an affection. It's, it's a devotion and an affection for another person that's rooted ultimately, ideally, in the work of Christ. That drives you. It drives you to sacrifice yourself for those you love, for their well-being, even when they don't deserve it. And not with any expectation of personal gain. That's what I believe biblical love is. Friends, to love and to grow in love means that you take initiative with others. You go out to others. You don't wait until someone loves you or is nice to you. You don't wait until someone asks you give love. It means you give of yourself. Yes, loving means words and it means deeds, but it's, it's yourself, it's your being. It means you forgive. It means you serve. It means that your love is free with no strings attached, not looking for personal reward or recognition. Love we're told in Scripture, is patient, it's kind, it's not envious, it's not arrogant, it's not rude to other people. Loving doesn't insist on its own way. And, and we're going to have to deal with that. Not like next month, but this afternoon, you're going to get home, and you're going to have to decide, am I going to insist on my own way with my spouse, with my siblings, with my friends, with the, the people that I'm going to see? Will you insist on your own way, or will you be loving? Will you not be irritable? We resist resentment. 
To be loving is gracious, it's humility, it's selfless, it's faithful. We're called to love one another in attitude, but also in action, to act out our love. And that may mean practical things. It may mean watching kids for a family in need. It may be making a meal. It may be stepping up to empty the dishwasher. It may be lending someone your car. It might be giving money to those in need to, to meet practical needs, but also spiritual and emotional needs. That means listening to a friend, praying for and with those in need, encouraging one another, being purposeful to take initiative and encourage one another, caring for each other, being there, being a servant to those in your family and those in this room, being a friend, being a brother or a sister to those you have not seen for months and months, to call them and encourage them. A passion and a devotion and an affection rooted in Christ's work, driving you to sacrifice yourself for their well-being and so we pray we pray in 2022 increase our faith and increase our love give us your heart god for those in our life increase our love for one another increase our love for our spouses for our children for our church family for our lost friends and family that are wandering without you god grow us in love as we read here as he did in the lives of those christians And so we see in these opening verses that the Christians in Thessalonica were growing in faith, they were increasing in love, but they also had enduring perseverance. Look at verse 4. The SV translates this as steadfastness, to be steadfast, unmovable, unshakable, persevering. In fact, Paul, Silas, and Timothy are so impressed with the perseverance of these Christians that they're actually boasting about them to other churches. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. They're boasting about the the Thessalonians to other people. Is that right? I thought we were only supposed to boast about God, you might say. Yes, that's true. But when you highlight the growth, when you highlight the strength in a fellow Christian, you are in fact boasting in Christ when, when done appropriately, right? Because you're, you're glorifying God saying, look at what God has done in my friend's life. Isn't God amazing? And so they're boasting in these Christians and they're boasting in Christ. And I think there's good reason for us to do that. I think we should regularly do that. Build one another up and, and talk about one another. Yeah, talk about one another in front of, in their face and behind their back to build them up, not to tear them down, but to build them up. So do you know what God has done in Matt's life and Gary's life and Scott's life and Julie's life? In Heather's life, do you see what God has done? Did you, did you hear what God's done in Karen's life? Can we boast this morning because of what God's done? I think there's several good reasons to do that. First of all, I think it builds up the person who you're talking about. See, many of us, let's be honest, we have far too low a view of ourselves. That's just the reality. And so we need others to remind us of the progress God has made in our lives. We live in a world that loves to criticize, that loves to tear down. Can we be a people that build one another up? You would say, when well, they come to my life group every week and they're, they're, they're difficult. Okay, that's fine. You're going to talk about what they're difficult? Why they're difficult? Or are you going to find that area of their life where God is at work and, and, and emphasize that and boast on that? Let's build one another up. I think that's part of the reason why Paul mentions this here. He's building them up. Secondly, it glorifies God. It builds up the other person and it glorifies God. See, when you point out what God is doing in someone's life, it's a, it's a form of praise. It's a form of exalting God. And God always deserves our praise. And so when I tell you what amazing thing God, God is doing in, in Ed's life, guess what? God is praised. Amen? Thirdly, I think it encourages other people. 
When you talk about someone and what the amazing victories that they're having and the faith that they're having, what God is doing in their life, it not only praises God and builds up that person, but the people who are hearing it, the people who you're talking to, they are encouraged as well. Friends, listen. Every single frustration that you walked in here with this morning, every single struggle that you had this past week is not unique to you. There's someone else who has faced something either exactly or very similar to what you're going through. And when you hear about what God did in their life, it encourages you. Amen? It reminds you that you're not on your own. It reminds you, well, if God strengthened their faith, surely He can strengthen my faith. If God gave them victory over that battle with sin, surely He can do the same for me. Far from making you jealous to hear about what God's done in the life of another believer, it should stir your faith. It should give you hope. And so let's be people that boast about the Lord and boast about His work in our lives. In this particular case, in verse 4, they're boasting because of the perseverance of the Thessalonians. Now, I found this interesting. In Greek, that this word that's translated steadfastness or perseverance, it's the idea of remaining behind. And I don't know why, I don't know why my mind works the way that it does, but I immediately thought about being in a grocery store. Now, this is how I prefer to go down the aisles at a grocery store. Okay? This is, this is about the pace that I would like to walk through the grocery store. Right? But what happens? You turn down the aisle, it's crowded full of people, everybody's trying to get bread, and there's one old, old dear beloved man or woman, Right? And you're forced to get behind them and now you're doing this, right? And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm like this. I'm like, where's the first chance I can scoot around them without hopefully knocking them over, right? And, and that's what this word in the Greek means is, is the idea of remaining behind, right? Of patience. Like, I don't wanna, I don't wanna stand behind them. Like, I'm looking for the first opportunity to go around, right? And I can get back to the pace that I wanna be in. Now, true perseverance is not getting behind a slow person at the grocery store, right? But it's the same idea of remaining behind. But what is perseverance? It's remaining behind a a trial. Remaining behind a struggle. Remaining behind a hardship. Saying, I would much prefer to get out and around and just to move ahead past this difficulty. But God calls us to be people of perseverance that are steadfast. Enduring. Waiting. And something hard comes in your life, you got to wait behind it. Until the Lord removes it. Or the Lord gives you grace to to go in front of it. You face something scary or painful. You have to persevere. You have to remain behind it for as long as as our Father in His sovereign will keeps it in front of you. You face something that's uncomfortable. You have to remain behind it. You have to persevere until the time that God in His grace changes your circumstances or gives you the wisdom or the knowledge to move out and around that scary, hard, painful, or uncomfortable circumstance. See, look, the reality is you don't need perseverance when everything is going well, right? If there's nothing in front of you, you don't need perseverance. You just walk at whatever pace you want to walk, go wherever you want to go. But when those hardships come into life, that's when we need perseverance. And the Christians in Thessalonica were facing all kinds of persecution for their faith, afflictions, both from the Jews and the Gentiles, both from the religious leaders and the civil leaders we read. And yet they're enduring. They're holding on to Jesus. In fact, their suffering is increasing their faith and and increasing their perseverance. As one commentator said, I love this, he said that they've shown a tenacious loyalty to Christ in spite of fierce adversity. Oh, that that would describe us, that we would be people that have a tenacious loyalty to Christ in spite of fierce adversity. What, What is the fierce adversity that you are facing? Is it a personal struggle 
Something that maybe only you know about? Is it, a, is it an attack? Is it an overt spiritual attack from Satan? As, as many mental, emotional struggles that we face are attacks from the enemy, is it a battle against sin? Is it a temptation that you are finally decided to deal with after years and years of giving into this temptation? You've decided 2022 is the year where I'm going to be a new creation in Christ. And now you've got this, this battle. Is it an internal pressure to abandon the faith? Is it an external pressure to abandon the faith? Maybe a coworker, or a friend or a loved one is, is saying, really, do you, do you need to go that crazy for Jesus? Like, I understand that you're a Christian and you go to church, but can we settle down a little bit? Are there pressures in your life to abandon the faith? Maybe some here today struggle to believe. You say, yeah, man, I kind of get that there's a God out there somewhere. I'm not sure about Jesus. I don't know if I believe. Maybe you believe, but you're struggling to hold on. And you think, would it just be easier to let go and to give in and to live for myself? Friends, can you hold on? Can you endure? How did the Thessalonians do this? They are facing persecution in their city that we haven't even begun to understand. They were facing afflictions that in 2022 we probably couldn't identify with. But somehow their faith is flourishing. Somehow their love is increasing. Somehow their perseverance is enduring. How did they do it? Were they somehow special, different from us? Did they have some kind of secret that we don't have? Maybe life was easier for them in the first century than it is for us. How did they do it? I think we get some insight in, in chapter 3 of Second Thessalonians. Look at what Paul writes in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Towards the end of the letter. They say, we have confidence in the Lord about you. That you are doing and will do the things that we command. We're confident that everything we've written in this letter, they say, that you're doing and that you will do. And look at verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. How are they growing in faith and love and perseverance? Because of the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. It's the same word. The same word to describe their steadfastness is used to describe the steadfastness of Jesus. They had it only because Jesus had it. Listen, we can grow in faith. You can grow in faith amidst the opposition that you're facing because God is faithful. You can increase in love. You can love the people in your life that are the hardest, which often is the people that are closest to you, right? You can love them because Jesus loves you. And we can preserve, we can preserve through the greatest trials that we face. And we thought 2020 was hard, and then we thought 2021 was hard. I don't know what 2022 is going to bring. But I will tell you this, no matter what it faces, no matter what you face, you can persevere, you can endure. Why? Because I think you're strong enough? Because I think we can do it? Because I think we can, we can force ourselves? No, because Christ will endure. Amen? We can endure because Jesus will endure in us and through us and for us. He never gives up on you. He never caves under pressure. He never loses hope. That's why He came. That's why we remember week in and week out His death and His resurrection. He came to stand strong for us when we couldn't. He came to die on the cross to forgive us from our sins, to rise from the dead, to empower us with His persistence, with His endurance. 